we must not be high-minded. We must not think that we can finally see things as they really are. Because to see things as they really are would mean, at the limit, to see things as God sees them. In 1944, C.S. Lewis wrote a short essay titled On the Reading of Old Books as an introduction to St. Athanasius's The Incarnation of the Word of God. In it, Lewis notes, quote, The student is half afraid to meet one of the great philosophers face to face. He feels himself inadequate and thinks he will not understand him. But if he only knew, the great man, just because of his greatness, is much more intelligible than his modern commentator, end quote. Though Lewis here in context is speaking of a student encountering Plato's original writing for the first time, it might also be an apt description for how one might feel regarding reading G.K. Chesterton for the first time face to face, especially the man who was Thursday, the face of President Sunday, for example, the supreme anarchist of the novel, is often described as having a rather large and hideously frightening face. And on the face of it, Chesterton's prose might also seem dauntingly large and hideous. But there is more to what lies behind the appearance of it all. If one is able to get past the initial shock, there is much more wisdom and adventure to be gleaned from it. And in turning to the face of Sunday and the man who was Thursday, we must first forget ourselves and our own preconceptions for just a moment. Reading a work of literature in this spirit is akin to a kind of repentance, a turning away from self, a forgetting of the self, and a turning to someone else. In his 1961 book, An Experiment in Criticism, speaking of understanding and receiving works of art, Lewis notes that, quote, We must begin by laying aside as completely as we can all our own preconceptions, interests, and associations. We must make room for Botticelli's Mars and Venus or Shimabue's crucifixion by emptying out our own. After the negative effort, the positive. We must use our eyes, we must look, and go on looking till we have certainly seen what is there. We sit down to the picture in order to have something done to us, not that we may do things with it. The first demand of any work of art makes upon us is surrender. Look, listen, receive. Get yourself out of the way. End quote. The way things really are is stranger than anything we could have imagined for ourselves, as Lewis notes in Mere Christianity, that if Christianity, quote, offered us just the kind of universe we had always expected, I should feel we were making it up. It has just that queer twist about it that real things have. So let us leave behind all these boys' philosophies, these over-simple answers. The problem is not simple, and the answer is not going to be simpler, end quote. Consider which etymologically means to think with the stars, how scripture, for example, describes God. He is a sun and shield, 
the bright and morning star, the sun of righteousness, the light of the world. A sun is a bridegroom rejoicing to run its course. He tells Moses that no one may see his face and live, but then, in a twist, puts on a face as a man, so that in fact we may look upon him and live. To truly see his glory, to truly turn from darkness to light, as do the very planets themselves, we must forget ourselves, our own faces. That, in essence, is true humility, true self-denial, true repentance. As Asaph writes in Psalm 80, Let thy hand be upon the man of thy right hand, upon the son of man whom thou didst make strong for thyself. Then we shall not turn back from thee. Revive us, and we will call upon thy name. O Lord God of hosts, restore us. Cause thy face to shine upon us, and we will be saved. As one of Chesterton's characters proclaims, quote, the sun is a fixed star, end quote. So as we fix our attention on Chesterton's The Man Who Was Thursday, let us forget ourselves for a while. Let us turn to Sunday, to our Sabbath rest, though the world may turn to what seems like chaos and madness, and we will begin to appreciate the wonder and wildness of the divine comedy in which we find ourselves a player. As Lewis says in a chapter entitled Invasion in Mere Christianity, quote, Enemy occupied territory. That is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise and is calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage, end quote. As Jesus says in the Gospels, repent for the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. When you said something about childhood, I was in the last chapter here, The Accuser, page 151 in the book I'm reading. Um, just a small quote here. For a long time, it seemed for hours that the huge masquerade of mankind swayed and stamped in front of them to marching and exultant music. Every couple dancing seemed a separate romance. It might be a fairy dancing with a pillar box or a peasant girl dancing with the moon. But in each case, it was somehow as absurd as Alice in Wonderland yet as grave and as kind as a love story. And that Ooh. is in the, the, the end there where in all the, the days gather before Sunday. And I think that is, uh, that is actually what, you know, child, uh, Chesterton's love of childhood, his, his, his humble imagination, um, you know, what you say, the love story there about the girl with the red hair, the gravitas, the gravity of, of being human and, and acting out uh, the language that God has given us in creation. Mm. Yeah. And so the fact that we don't perceive reality correctly, in inverted commas, you know, the fact that the sun appears to move across the sky, when in reality, we say, it is we who are moving, not the sun. Mm -hmm. That, that uh, mismatch between perception and reality is a, is, a, is a useful way of retaining our humility. I think that's one of the reasons why Chesterton was so fascinated with this whole matter. Mm. But we must not be high-minded. We must not think that we can finally 
see things as they really are because to see things as they really are would mean at the limit to see things as god sees them as god sees them right and we cannot because we cannot be god at least, certainly not in this life we we might right. hope to share in the divine attributes and become sanctified saints in the in the world to come um and then we might as it were share the divine perspective but mm. while we're on this earth we are not going to we have we have no serious chance right so um we should recognize that humbly and rejoice in the fact that we are as we are yes the uh exactly what you say here in the chapter called the six philosophers when you have everybody ruminating about who they think sunday is syme uh speaks up and he says then again and always uh that has been for me the mystery of sunday speaking of the large man at the head of their meeting and it is also the mystery of the world. When I see the horrible back, I am sure the noble face is but a mask. When I see the face but for an instant, I know the back is only a jest. Bad is so bad that we cannot but think good an accident. Good is so good that we feel certain that evil could be explained. But the whole came to a kind of crest yesterday when I raced Sunday for the cab and was just behind him all the way. And I think that's a phenomenal insight to what you just said in terms of appearances, that mm -hmm. we see both good and evil, but we don't see the whole thing. We see the backside of what God sees. Because as you say, if we see as the world as it is, we are actually kind of seeing uh, God's vantage point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, or, or to put it another way, we are seeing the face of God itself. Mm -hmm. um, and no one shall see my face and live. Right. Exodus the Lord 33. tells Moses. Yes. Uh, but the Lord puts Moses in the cleft of the rock and, and lets him see his back. Heals him so that he can only see his back. Yes. And that's. Yes. And is that's that. Enough. Is that what Simon is saying here in the six philosophers? Again, he says, he says this. Just, it's almost like a paraphrase of Exodus. He says, Shall I tell you the secret of the whole world? It's almost like he's speaking like Moses here. It is that we have only known the back of the world. We see everything from behind, and it looks brutal. That is not a tree, but the back of a tree. That is not a cloud, but the back of a cloud. Can you not see that everything is stooping and hiding a face if we could only get around front? Yeah. It's interesting how very often um, the symbol of the sun is used as an image for God. Uh, Lewis talks about this, doesn't he, about how the, yes. how the sun is or is like God in any conceivable uh, theistic uh, system of thought. Mm -hmm. The sun is, is the archetypal symbol for the divine. Right, and, and I think uh, Psalm 19 compares it to a bridegroom rejoicing. Yes, um, yeah. but we cannot look at the sun without going blind. And that itself is very telling, too. Mm -hmm. if, we, uh, if we try to adopt one particular kind of fixed perspective on the sun, we will actually r remove our ability to see at all. Mm. Um, we cannot see the sun, though by, by, by the sun we can see things. Yes. We may not be able to look into the face of God, but if we trust God, if we have faith in God, we can see everything else. You know, here again, Lewis, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Right, right. And so at the end of The Man Who Was Thursday, uh, we have this interesting moment, which, again, from one point of view, looks nightmarish. But from another point of view, I think it is meant to be a sort of nod towards a 
more Christian uh, approach to things. Because, of course, you know, we've been talking about Moses and how Moses only sees the back of God. Mm -hmm. But in the Christian dispensation, God becomes man. Right. And we can, see, we can see God face to face. He becomes one of us. He becomes incarnate. He's, he's mm -hmm. Emmanuel, God with us. Um, but, of course, Christ himself says that only the Son sees the Father. Only the Son knows the Father. Mm. Um, Christ himself, as it were, can look into the Son, the, the face of the Son in the sky, right. um, because he is the true Son of God. Mm -hmm. And so at the end of the, of the novel, Syme, we're told, had turned his eyes so as to see suddenly the great face of Sunday, which wore mm. a strange smile. Have you, he cried in a dreadful voice, have you ever suffered? And as Syme gazed, the great face grew to an awful size. It grew larger and larger, filling the whole sky. Then everything went black. Only in the blackness before it entirely destroyed his brain, he seemed to hear a distant voice saying a commonplace text that he had heard somewhere. Can ye drink of the cup that I drink of? Ooh, yes. Now, of course, those are the words of, of Christ before the crucifixion. When yes. Christ enters into his glory. Um, and we can't drink that cup. Mm -mm. He can drink it for us and we can enter into his saving passion. But we can't pretend that we have the ability to look into the face of God. Only the like, Son of God can do that. Right. And it's like, uh, it, it's also, it seems to be an allusion to the darkness of the sun at the crucifixion as well. That Sunday uh, kind of creates this darkness into which Syme enters uh, mm -hmm. in some sense. Um, I want to briefly make point of, of what you're just saying here about the sun. Uh, in relation to something Syme says in the pursuit of the president. Um, the, the narrator is describing here, it says, the whole gave him a sensation, the vividness of which he could not explain, that nature was always making quite mysterious jokes. Sunday had told them that they would understand him when they had understood the stars. And I think that is exactly kind of what you're saying about the mm. sun. Um, you know, the, the analogous nature of the sun to, to God and to Christ, that once we understand the stars and once we understand the glory of God, we understand who Jesus is. Yes. And, and again, literally, we understand by standing under. That's right. Um, <laughs> but, not, but not by standing over against the stars. That's right. That's it's right. A, it's a posture of humility. So do you think he's addressing the idea that the, quote, Copernican revolution was kind of taking the a, post, uh, a priori position above the stars, that we are looking down upon them in pronouncing that God has nothing more to do with them? Do you think he's kind of uh, suggesting that science is doing this, um, setting itself up and above and beyond um, what, uh, what science and what man can know about the universe? Well, not necessarily. Um, you know, I don't, Chesterton, I think, was not anti-science in, mm -hmm. in, the, in the least bit. Um, it would only be an abuse of science that he would be critiquing, not science itself. That's what I meant. Yes. Thanks for the um, clarification. Yeah. He's not anti-intellectual. He's, he's, and he firmly accepts, as far as I can tell, the, uh, the, the discovery of, of uh, the discoveries and the, and the theories of, you know, advanced by Copernicus and then you know, confirmed by Kepler and Galileo mm -hmm. once the telescope was invented in the 17th century. So he's, I don't think Chesterton is wanting to pretend that we can 
re-institute uh, the heptarchy. He says, th theoretically, we could go back and restore the heptarchy, the seven-fold scheme of the cosmos. Mm -hmm. uh, we could, in theory, do that. We don't absolutely have to lie in the bed that we have made. Um, he's not suggesting that we should be, should actually do that, only that in theory we could. And I think that's his point, that you know, every scientific advance um, brings with it a, you know, both liberation and constraint. And again, this is C.S. Lewis's point, isn't it, in, the, in mm -hmm. Out of the Silent Planet, that there's always the mythology that follows in the wake of science. Yes. Science opens up new vistas. It gives us new information. It, in some ways, um, makes our view of the cosmos more precise. But if we're not very, very careful, at the same time, it inhibits us and constrains us and confines us to one particular metaphorical way of understanding reality, which can itself trap us. So we must always hold our metaphors and our paradigms with uh, with a due provisionality, with a humility, a humility, so that we don't so, so we don't mistake our account of things for the reality of things. Right, we're not seeing reality as it is. We're seeing our models of reality, exactly, yes. which Lewis addresses as well. And uh, I think it's the Empty Universe where he's saying that. Yes, but also at the end of the discarded image, where he has a whole right. epilogue all about you know models of the cosmos and how you know as we advance from one to the next, as we advance from the Copernican to the, to the Newtonian, to the Einsteinian, we are indeed making progress. And there's, he's not saying a word against it. Mm. Only is he's wanting us to retain a due humility as we yeah. advance from one model to the next. I want to address briefly the idea of, of uh, the anarchists and the anarchy, which you said uh, etymologically anarchy is without beginning, correct? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, are you familiar with the, 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 the verse that's quoted in the chapter on the earth and anarchy? I think it's the Dunciad. Uh, one of the characters quotes, what is all that at the end of the Dunciad? And then it's, uh, I'll read the poem here. It says, no public flame nor private dares to shine, nor human left, no human life is left, nor glimpse divine. Lo, the dread empire, chaos is restored. Light dies before thine uncreating word. Thy hand, great anarch, capital A, lets the curtain fall, and universe darkness buries all. Do you know what's going on there? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. I didn't. I wasn't sure either. But I, I was, I was intrigued by the idea that uh, Chesterton included a poem that in included anarch with a capital A, mm. and I was thinking of the, the curtain falling and darkness falling, and I was thinking of the veil. Uh, mm. in the temple and the sun being darkened at, uh, at uh, the crucifix. It seemed like life at the point of the crucifix, that universe was in anarchy, it seemed like. I, I don't know if that's a reference to, to what he's doing there, but it just seemed, it, it might be my imagination working overtime. But uh, do you think he's saying that, that, that God, he's really making this, the statement that God is without beginning by using the term anarch, anarchy? Uh, yes, he is. And of course, God is without beginning, uh, mm -hmm. and without end. Yes. Uh, you know, because God is eternal. Right. Um, and I think this this is probably what Chesterton is, is getting at uh, in terms of his satire upon um, the post-heliocentric view of the cosmos. Mm -hmm. That if we, if we just accept it uncritically, if we accept it... Um, 
unintelligently, we may, we may somehow think that this account of the universe is itself without a beginning, that it is ultimate, that it is a veritably divine way of understanding things. Yeah. In other words, we have adopted a position of anarchy with regard to our cosmology. Mm. Um, and that is actually a posture of idolatry. Because yeah. we are confusing a, a created reality with the uncreated divine source of all being, who is God himself. Mm. So, so no account that we come up with can truly be anarchic. It always has a beginning in time and in the minds of some clever person who dreamt it up. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we must not treat it as an ultimate reality. It can only be penultimate at best. Mm. That's, a, that's an excellent point. Um, Page 65, I love this, exactly what we're talking about. Syme had a flash for the sensation that the cosmos had turned exactly upside down, that all the trees were growing downwards and that all the stars were under his feet. Then came slowly the opposite conviction. For the last 24 hours, the cosmos had really been upside down. But now the capsized universe had come right side up again. <laughs> this devil from whom he had been fleeing all day was only an elder brother of his own house. He realizes that one of the undercover uh, anarchists is actually uh, a policeman like himself. But, uh, but, but in this facade of, you know, what things appear to be and what they really are, that in a couple sentences there, he's explaining the turning of the universe and the, the Copernican idea of, of conceiving stars under our feet and daisies above our head and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and that truly is. And I think he does a masterful job of really uh, not letting the reader wrap his head around who Sunday is. We're just mm -hmm. as confused as the anarchists, as, as mm -hmm. the guys in the group, <laughs> who are, interestingly enough, layer upon layer. So they're acting as an anarchist, but they're undercover uh, and that they don't all realize. And this is the thing that, that hit me again, even though I read it, I was like surprised by it again, that, that Sunday is the guy in the dark room that all calls them to be undercover policemen. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, is he for us or is he against us? What yes. is going on? <laughs> it, it really, and it reminds me a little bit of, of, uh, of, of Luther's theology of God's hidden will or God's invisible, uh, the, the hidden God, uh, the Deus abscondus, the, the God who is, uh, seems to be at times, against us and then at other times for us? How do we reconcile God seeming to be both loving and compassionate and kind and yet seems to be sometimes in our own circumstances indifferent to all the evils? Um, so it seems like, would, would it be too far-fetched to say that Chesterton was trying to encourage the common man or, or confuse and, and obfuscate and, and bring everybody into this anarchic confusion that he himself was experiencing? Or is there something to be taken away that can settle the whole matter as you read this book? Um, well, the nearest I, I have come to being able to read The Man Who Was Thursday in any settled way is by constant reference back to this question of geocentric versus heliocentric. Mm. But if, if, you, uh, if you approach the book as an attempt to, to, to toss up the relative merits of heliocentrism and geocentrism, then I think you've basically got what Chesterton is trying to say. Uh, but, it, but it's not resolved very easily mm. um, in the novel any more than it can be resolved in fact. Because, you know, 
This is the whole point. We yes. live in a heliocentric system, and yet it seems to be geocentric. Right. So you're, the whole point of it is like, well, I'm, I'm not going to finally, really, this side of heaven, understand exactly how these two go together. No, exactly. Which is precisely like what I think you find in modern physics and in all the theology of the last 200 years of trying to reconcile God and man in Christ. Uh, whether, you know, God is, I think, in, I know there are metaphors to spiritual enlightenment, but if you think of light as a particle in a wave, that's pretty mysterious. And mm. poetically, what kind of language, I think it was uh, a, a, a contemporary of C.S. Lewis, Werner Heisenberg, who wrote a book called uh, Physics and Philosophy. And he's struggling to come up with a language to describe what quantum physics is all about. Mm. He says, we just don't have the day-to-day -day kind of language mm -hmm. uh, that is required to explain this in simple terms. Mm -hmm. It's not, and, and he's writing basically the same kind of thing that Lewis did in the end of Discarded Image, where they're discussing the nature of how do you describe what science is uncovering? What's the mm -hmm. language? Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and you, you, you leave it in Christ and you see that, 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 that too, though we have enough to know who Jesus is, there are so many questions about his nature and how you reconcile God and man together, that the whole fabric of the universe is going to have these this dialectical tension that's never absolutely. entirely yeah. solved this side of heaven. Absolutely. Yeah. You think it's, 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 it's probably, I'm sorry, it's probably the, the, the penchant of modernity to want to come to a problem and walk away from the problem having been solved. Yes. And that would not be a good way to read Thursday. No. And it would not be a good way to live one's life. <laughs> uh, because not really, yeah, right, right. You know, the, the uh, the requirement of us as Christians is is to is to find the answer to mystery by through through love, not through knowledge. Mm, excellent point. And I think that Chesterton, like like Lewis, and indeed maybe Heisenberg, maybe Schrödinger, may, maybe many of these other wise wise thinkers, whether they be writers or scientists. Uh, they know that you can't finally grasp reality. Mm. And if you think you have, then you're committing idolatry. You're making a very bad misstep. Mm. And so, yeah, we need to rest in uh, what, what the poet Keats called um, negative capability. This, this ability to rest in uh, uncertainty without any irritable reaching after certitude. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I, I find the problem of certainty most exemplified in this book. This was uh, probably my funnest and most delightful scene in the book, where Syme is confident he's sword fighting a bad guy. <laughs> and he keeps poking the bad guy in his, and, and no, no blood comes out. <laughs> his vehemence is so dramatic. You just like, you, you feel the full force. This is probably the most angriest that Syme is in the entire novel. And he's poking and jabbing and stabbing and slicing and, and guys, his face is falling off <laughs> and nothing's coming out and Siamese frustrated. And it turns out that, that he was absolutely wrong about the fellow yes. uh, and that he's poking through a disguise. And you can see that, that <laughs> in a sense, by God's grace, that he doesn't allow, finally, our certainty to, to necessarily have its way. Yep, yep, yep. You praise God for that, right? Absolutely, yes. Yes. But... Um... So there's, I think, part of the nightmarishness of the man who says is that on the one hand, it, the the uncertainty uncertainty seems 
unsettling. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, as Chesterton describes it somewhere, it's a, the, the novel is a, a very melodramatic kind of moonshine. Mm. And moonshine, of course, there's another example of, of a kind of lunacy where you think that the moon shines by its own light. And of mm. course, the light that comes from the moon is purely reflective. It's not self-originating. or yes. It's yes. derived light. And so The Man Who Was Thursday is a very melodramatic kind of that sort of lunacy. But once you accept humbly, responsibly, intelligently that the moon's light is reflective, well, then you can just enjoy it. And you needn't become a lunatic. (laughs) You go mad. I think it was Lewis, and I'm paraphrasing it. I don't know where it is. But you go mad. No, it's Chesterton. Uh, The poet only wants to... to, uh, put his head in the universe uh but it, the madman wants to fit the universe in his head yes uh i'm killing the quote i have it somewhere but but that was chesterton's idea that the poet just wants to sort of the idea is the poet wants to rest like like going on a vacation to a place you've never been you just you rest in that you don't try to figure it all out you just relax yes. but yes, uh yes, yes. the modernity the penchant of modernity is to we want to stuff all the knowledge of the universe into our brains and decry once and for all or declare once and for all that we have the, uh, well, like the late Stephen Hawking, um, who wanted a theory of everything. I mean, he was just absolutely on a quest to have that final mathematical theorem that could just be the touchstone, sorcerer's stone, philosopher's stone of everything. Yeah. Uh, and I, I don't think Chesterton or Lewis would, would be against that in principle. No. I mean, neither of them is anti-intellectual. Neither of them right. is anti-scientific. Yeah, we should we should keep pushing the boundaries and, and developing yeah. our theories and advancing our knowledge. That's a good thing, as long as it is done humbly. That's the yeah, <laughs> and that's that's a very important, necessary balance to walk because I am often guilty of that error and disproportionately focusing on you know the, the modern philosophies of science without understanding that science is science is good needing to make the distinction that science is good but science the necessity as you say the necessity of humility in in doing good science yeah, yeah, um, yeah. is is absolutely essential and that's you know humility is not something that you get from science no in the in the final analysis you don't get anything in a materialistic universe uh, you as lewis said you, the universe is from a materialistic perspective is empty in that regard so uh, I think we've, we've given our listeners quite enough of a tour to say, well, if you're going to read this book, uh, bring a hat and, and <laughs> hang on. <laughs> bring your galoshes and wet weather gear because it's going to be a bumpy ride. Uh, yeah, but a fun ride. It's, a fun it's, ride. It's a, a roller fun coaster ride. of a ride, like at, at a good theme park. Right. And, and I recommended this to my mom and she loves to read. And I think if, 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 if I could recommend one thing, and then I'll have you recommend some points before we head off here. Um, don't read this book. Like you got, like it's a bunch of clues and you have to figure it all out. Just read it through yeah. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. enjoy the narrative. Um, and then you can come back and appreciate the parts later. That was my thing to get through it. You just have to enjoy the story and then yes. you can go back and, and reappreciate it. I think he was, writing this book to be read and to, and to reread. It was interesting for me, and I don't know what if, there, if any connection there was, that uh, this came out in 1908, just three years after Einstein published his, uh, his first theory of relativity. It's general or special. I forget which one it is. But uh, the, the strangeness of, of the idea of space and time being uh, one thing, uh, 
you know, I don't know how aware or up on the science Chesterton was at the time, but uh, turn of the 20th century, um, it's, it's interesting to know. How much of the context of the 20th century do you think influenced his, his writing there? Uh, well, quite a bit, um, though I suspect it was not so much Einstein that he has in his sights, but uh, Nietzsche. Um, hmm. Nietzsche. The madman. Yes, Nietzsche has a lot to say about gravity. Um, and in the gay science, Nietzsche says um, we need to get beyond good and evil because God's moral law is a kind of oppressive gravity that keeps mm. us down. I see. And Chesterton knew his Nietzsche fairly well and, and tackles Nietzsche in uh, orthodoxy, for instance. And, he, and yeah. he heard a lot of Nietzsche through, through his sparring partner, George Bernard Shaw. And Shaw, of course, wrote a Nietzschean play, Man and Superman. Right. So I, I suspect that uh, Chesterton's implicit target in The Man Who Was Thursday is Nietzsche. Got it. And he's, he's trying to point out, no, no gravity is, is a good thing. It is good that we are kept down mm. um, because that's, that's how, if, if we accept it humbly and in a childlike fashion, mm -hmm. we, can, we can enter into the, the beautiful unconscious gravity of a, of a child. It's interesting, Michael, because uh, I just finished reading the brand new Cosmos book, uh, Carl Sagan's Widow uh, mm -hmm. with Neil deGrasse Tyson. They've just reproduced the third series and they just wrote a book and I just read Andrew Yin's book. And it's interesting, uh, the general sense of this idea that is so pervasive in modern cosmology, especially when you talk about uh, space exploration, space, um, that gravity is like a prison, like it's a chain, like, mm. like it's something from which we need to escape. Uh, yes. that we're bound, that we, we shouldn't be bound. The idea is that we should have a limitless uh, ability to explore everything that we want to explore. We don't want to accept limitations on, mm -hmm. our, on our person. It, it just seems like, because the whole Cosmos series is about possible worlds and leaving Earth and going to other planets and, and exploring. And I would love, I can only imagine what Lewis would think of this. <laughs> um, but but it's interesting because I've I've seen lately in some of the stuff I've been reading um, that gravity is a bad thing, uh, kind of like what you just said that it that it limits us, it keeps us tethered, and we don't want to be tethered, we don't want to be limited. Yeah, Justin in Orthodoxy he says that Satan fell by the force of gravity, mm. and then he goes on and says pride cannot rise to levity or levitation. Pride is the downward drag of all things into a sort of selfish seriousness, but one has to rise to a gay self-forgetfulness. Wow. And, it, and elsewhere he says that angels can fly because they can take themselves lightly. Wow, where was that? What, where does that's that all in orthodoxy. In orthodoxy. Chapter seven of orthodoxy. Chapter seven, so, that, that's beautiful. I so angels can fly because they can take themselves lightly. So you can escape the downward pull, um, but only if you are humble. Hmm. That's the paradox. So it seems to be that for Chesterton, the, the true biblical humility is exactly what scripture says. It is a denial. That sounds like a, a negative thing, but it's actually a good thing. A denial of self. Um, yeah, self-forgetfulness. Yes. Self-forgetfulness. Into a gay self-forgetfulness. And it's interesting that Chesterton uses the word gay there. Yeah. You know, gay, gay in the old sense. Now, yeah, um, right. Because there again, I think he's probably glancing at Nietzsche. 
Nietzsche's mm. book, The Gay, yeah, the gay Science. Science. Right, right. But here, true gaiety results in the ability to not defeat gravity, but to transcend it. Mm. Mm. Not, yeah, to, uh, not to escape the moral law into this you know, Nietzschean uh, supra-realm of beyond good and evil. Not to defeat it, but to transcend it by, by obeying it like our Lord. Yeah. Uh, it puts me in mind of um, Lewis's essay, Man or, Rabbit, Man or Rabbit, where he talks about how those who think that Christianity is all about morality haven't understood the first thing about Christianity. It's not Indeed. about morality at all, um, <laughs> or at least not, not finally, because you have to go, the, the road to the promised land leads past Mount Sinai. Mm-hmm. The road to the promised land leads past Mount Sinai. You have to go to Sinai like the ancient Israelites and get the, the Ten Commandments. But you mustn't stop there. No. You mustn't stop with morality because the Christian life is, or the, you know, the life that God is calling us to is a life of fulfillment, of promise, of a land flowing right. with milk and honey. Right. I mean, the, where, where you no longer think about morality. That's right. Because, I mean, if you think about the Red Sea event, um, it's not because uh, the, the Israelites were, were a group of astute philosophers thinking about morals and ethics that parted the water. Yeah, uh, it, it seems to be that we are participating in something that God is doing for us. And in receiving that, we have to let go of ourselves in order yes. to be able to to perceive the levity of God's grace. I mean, it's, yes. it's a, I don't mean this in a, in a, in a, in a lighthearted sense, but it's almost the Exodus and, and events like this are almost like a, well, I think what Dante says, a divine comedy of sorts, a, a, yes. a narrative, a, a participation that, that, that requires humility and self-forgetfulness in order to see the goodness of what God is doing in our lives. Absolutely. That's awesome. Well, I think we've, uh, this has been an hour. I think we've yes. rounded it out. We've given, an, a, 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 I think, plenty of good stuff. If you haven't read The Man Who Is Thursday, uh, now would be a fantastic time. To pick it up, you could probably read it in a day. And, uh, and uh, Michael, thank you so much for okay. coming on Good Heavens. This fulfills the sixth year in a row that you and I have talked in March. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. And it's been a, a wonderful privilege to, to have you in our book, uh, to know you, and uh, to, for you to give me your time today on Good Heavens. Uh, any parting wisdom for negotiating uh, the man who was Thursday? Uh, well, two things. I would, when we talked about this already, uh, maybe your listeners will want to reacquaint themselves with the epilogue to C.S. Lewis's The Discarded Image. Lewis himself talks about uh, cosmological models. Uh, but also, a lot of what I've been saying to you today has come out of my, my study of, of this novel and an article I wrote for um, the journal produced by our friends from Houston Baptist University. Yes, an unexpected journal. Yes, so Fantastic. the, the, the uh, Advent 2019 issue of an unexpected journal, that is to say volume two, issue four, mm-hmm. which you can find online, um, an unexpected journal has my article on Chesterton and the Seven Heavens. Uh, so if anybody wants more detail, they can find it there. Great. That is fantastic. Well, thank you, sir. Enjoy the rest of your afternoon and thank tea you. time. And I yes. hope you're uh, bearing up well in all of this. Uh, the world does seem to be a kind of nightmare status right now, right? So it, yes. uh, I hope you're bearing well and everything is going fairly well in the UK. Um, well, yes and no. I mean, just today, the news is that our prime minister has got the virus. 
No. Yesterday we learned that the heir to the throne, Prince Charles, has the virus. Oh my goodness. Um, so it's rather disconcerting, but um, we press on and um, we're, we're sailing into a storm. The next few weeks are going to be the worst of it for us, I think. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But thank God so far um, it yes. hasn't been as bad as it might be. Are you uh, quarantined at Oxford? Are you? Well, we're all required to stay at home. Okay, that's, you are. That's a national requirement. So, Our, um, uh, the, the, the Texas governor, as far as I know, has not issued a statewide stay at home, but I know he's allowed counties. I don't know if this has changed or not. I know he's allowed counties to uh, to decide whether or not they want to force people to stay at home. We only have two cases in our county where I live, mm. um, but Tarrant County right next to us has uh, several cases. Um, and uh, it's hard to tell when this thing will peak, but, um, but I think, uh, uh, you know, our focus on Christ, um, it, for me, it's, it's, what, it's what's what helping me through it, of course. Um, I'm doing okay. I'm holed up. I've, I've chose to self-isolate, but uh, I only go to the store when I need to. Um, but I thought uh, chatting about Chesterton for this time would be a, a good thing to get people's minds off of uh, the chaos that is around yes, us. Yes, yes, yes. So. Good idea. Thank you for joining us, Michael. And uh, I really, truly appreciate your, your wisdom and insights uh, into everything. And um, I will, we will be in touch. So yes. thank you for- My pleasure. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye, Dan. And good. Take care. Well, we certainly hope you've been exhorted, encouraged, and blessed by Dr. Ward's insights. And you consider reading for the first time or reread again the wonderfully wild world of the man who was Thursday. Thank you for joining us for what was, for me, a delightful discussion with Michael about Chesterton and his timeless classic, which, by the way, is over a hundred years old, never going out of print since it first appeared in 1908, so I think that would classify as an old book, as C.S. Lewis would have it. Good Heavens is a production of Watchman Fellowship Incorporated, Arlington, Texas. You can visit watchman.org today for great resources on apologetics, the Christian faith, other world religions, worldviews, and cults. And don't forget to subscribe to our new Apologetics Profile podcasts on iTunes, Podomatic, Google, and Spotify. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to support Good Heavens or the Apologetics Profile podcasts, you can become a patron today at patreon.com slash goodheavens or patreon.com slash watchmanfellowship. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Good Heavens. Good Heavens.